It's Christmas Eve, December 24th, the year 2000. We're at Foxborough Stadium, which is home to the New England Patriots. Over 60,000 people have come to watch the Pats play the Dolphins. It's the last game of the season. The Patriots are up at halftime, but they fail to score any points in the fourth quarter, and somehow they manage to lose again. It's been a horrible year. The Pats finished the season 5-11. and They have the worst record in the AFC East. There are five teams in the AFC East, and they come in fifth, dead last, at the bottom of the pile. 2000 is the kind of year that most Pats fans would love to forget. However, something very special happens to the Patriots this year. In the year 2000, Tom Brady joins their team. Now, here's what's remarkable about this story. When one of the worst teams in the NFL gets the greatest of all time, nobody thought much of him. See, Tom Brady was a sixth-round draft pick. 254 athletes were drafted that year into the NFL. Tom Brady was ranked 199. That means that 198 players were picked before Tom Brady. 198 players you've probably never heard of and probably never will were picked before the most winning quarterback in NFL history. 198 players were picked before the man who would lead his team to nine Super Bowls and win six of them. When Brady slipped a Pat's jersey over his head for the first time, there was no voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Brady. There was no angels proclaiming good news to beleaguered Patriots fans. Instead, there were a few muffled yawns, maybe a couple clicks of a camera, when this six-round draft pick, the greatest of all time, donned a jersey synonymous with losers and losing. In the year 2000, the Pats went 5-11. and 11. One year later, they finished 11-5. and five. They go from 5-11 to 11-5. To 11 it is a complete turnaround, like a complete reversal. And the difference, of course, is Brady. Now, Tom Brady was supposed to warm the bench, but in the second game of the season, starting quarterback Drew Bledsoe suffered a near-fatal injury when he was hit by Jets linebacker Mel Lewis. Brady is pulled off the bench, and he is told to suit up. He goes on to win that game and 10 others and take his team to the playoffs and lead them into Super Bowl victory. Before Brady, the Patriots were the worst. And now they are legendary. Last week, we looked at the Christmas story. It's the turn of the millennium, 0 BC. And it's a pretty forgettable year except for this fact. Year 0 is the year that the Lord of the universe, talk about the greatest of all time, right? the year that he becomes a human being. This is the year that he takes on flesh. This is the year he puts on our jersey. And this is the year he joins one of the most losing teams in all of history. When God joins the human race, he's easy to overlook. He comes as a baby. He's born to a poor teenage couple. He's born in a barn, and he's laid in a manger. He doesn't look like much. Without the aid of history or angelic proclamation, the significance of this draft pick will totally pass you by. 
Tonight, I want you to better understand why God comes to earth in the person of Jesus. See, God did not come to earth to kick our butts. Right? God came to earth to save our asses. He came to stand in solidarity with the human race, right? to save sinners. But he doesn't just stand in solidarity with us. He's also destined to lead this team, right, the human race, to victory. Because God is on our side, and God is also our MVP. Those are my two points tonight. And let's see how Luke, the gospel writer, makes these points, starting in chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins this way. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Stop there. In the opening chapters, or excuse me, in the opening verses of Luke chapter three, we're introduced to a man named John. John is a prophet. Indeed, according to Jesus, he's the greatest prophet to have ever lived. And in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which was around 29 or 30 AD, this man named John appears in the Jordanian wilderness. He has long hair and maybe a bushy beard. He wears camel's hair clothes, which he cinches down tight with a big leather belt. He eats locusts and wild honey. I imagine he's a little wild and wild looking. But say what you want, right? The guy knows how to preach. In fact, the whole region is turning out to hear what he has to say. We'll pick up again at verse 7. John says to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, <clears throat> to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And John doesn't mince his words. And his message is straightforward and to the point. There's a sense of urgency in his voice. God is coming. He's just around the bend. Right? He's right behind me. Everyone, everyone needs to be cleansed and get ready for him. See, John is not preaching this message to a bunch of pagans. He's preaching this to religious folks, too. He's saying that everybody, stoners and eagle scouts, prostitutes and prudes, insiders and outsiders, right, those who come to RUF and those who don't, everybody, right, everybody needs to be cleansed because everybody is sinful, Everybody is beautiful because they're made in the image of God, but everybody's broken too. Everybody is messed up. And everybody needs to get in the water, John says, myself included. All of us need to be baptized. All of us need to be made clean. All of us need to get ready to meet our God. Megan and I, uh, we used to have a dog named Coulter. Uh, He passed away in February. And we love that dog. 
And we gave them all sorts of nicknames. Names like Shimmy and Jimmy and Yaya and Prince. (laughs) There's more. But we would call him Prince because he would love to lie on our couch and also lie in bed with us. He's a prince. But sometimes Coulter or Prince would leave our house. And inevitably, he would find something nasty to roll in. Some mud or worse, like a rotting squirrel in a neighbor's backyard. Sometimes we'd find Coulter sort of mid-rub, you know, like belly in the air. Or sometimes we'd catch him sort of with his tail between his legs. But either way, he looked and he smelled awful. Now, when Coulter would do this, when he would roll in the squirrel or roll in the mud, we still loved our dog. We loved him just the same. But we couldn't be near him anymore. Looking like that and smelling like that, Coulter lost access. He lost access to the couch. He lost access to our bed. He couldn't be near us like he used to be. The only way that he could get back inside, back on our couch, back in our bed, back in our arms, is if he was washed. And here's the deal. That is something that Coulter never, ever could do on his own. As hard as he would try, Coulter could not make himself clean. Doesn't have opposable thumbs. He can't turn the water on. Coulter, Shimmy, Jimmy, Yaya Prince, he had to come to us. He had to let us do what he could not do for himself. He had to let us wash him. And that, in sum, is the essence of John's message in the Jordanian wilderness. He's saying, look, we're all a brood of vipers. We've all rolled in the metaphorical squirrel. We're all unclean. We're all unwell. We can't clean ourselves, but God can. So turn around. Turn towards him. Right? Repent. That's what that word means, right? Turn around. Turn towards him. And humble yourself before him. Come home. Restore what was lost. You can be near him once more. He can make everything all right. As John is saying these things, people are asking him, who are you or who do you think you are? Are you the Messiah? John says, no, 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 no. Not even close. I baptize you with water. But the one behind me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He is mightier than I. His straps I'm not worthy to untie. I love how that rhyme is captured in the Bible. He's mightier than I. His straps I'm not worthy to untie. It's at this point in the narrative that things get really interesting. Jesus shows up to the River Jordan. John points to him. He says, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one that we've been waiting for. Stop following me. Start following him. But this is where things get more interesting still. Because Jesus isn't there to win a crowd, per se. Jesus shows up to get baptized. This throws John completely off guard. He says to Jesus, what are you talking about you want to get baptized? I'm baptizing sinners. I'm baptizing people to get ready to meet you. You're not a sinner. You're the savior of sinners. So what do you mean 
you want to get baptized? And Jesus answers him, let it be so now, for thus it is, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. I'll say that again. It kind of came out weird the first time I said it. He said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Here's where we need to hit pause, or at least let the sort of narrative go in slow motion. Because this is one of those moments in the story of Jesus that you cannot let pass you by. When Jesus shows up to be baptized, what he is doing and what he is saying is that everything that God requires of us, everything that God requires of humanity, he is willing to do himself. Everything that God requires of you, Jesus will do too. Every step that you need to take, God himself is willing to make. By birth and by baptism, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, stands in solidarity with you and for you. That's what this means. Pop author and uh, speaker Brene Brown says that the two most powerful words when we're in struggle are, me too. The two most powerful words when we are struggling are me too. At Jesus' baptism, God is saying, me too. Baptize me too. If you gotta do it, me too. I'm in the waters with you. I'm in the fire with you. I'm in this fight with you and for you. This is who Jesus is. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. A counselor of mine named John Cox makes this point that from an emotional standpoint, the preposition with is the most powerful preposition in Scripture. We don't want a God who watches us from the sidelines. We want a God who loves us up close and personal. We don't want a God who uh, watches us from the sidelines. We want a God who steps onto the field and plays by our side. We don't want a God who's simply for us. We want a God who is with us as well. That is the kind of God that you want. And friends, that is the kind of God that you get when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. He stands in solidarity with you. He says, me too. He will always and forever meet you where you are at because he stands in solidarity with you. God will always meet you where you are at. But he also loves you enough not to leave you there. And the reason why is because he's your savior. He doesn't just stand in solidarity with you. He's also your hero. He's also your champion, your MVP. And that is the second thing I want you to see tonight. Jesus doesn't just stand in solidarity with you. Jesus is also your MVP. Take a look at our passage. As soon as Luke tells the story of Jesus' baptism... 
he does something strange. He inserts a genealogy that connects Jesus to David and to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abraham, and it ends up going all the way back to Adam. I'll read it for you. Not the whole genealogy, but I'm going to pick up where we last left off. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Then comes the genealogy in the very next verse. That was verse 22. Here's verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph. This goes on for 14 verses. But it ends, right? The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, at first blush, this seems like a strange place to insert a genealogy. But what Luke is doing here is very intentional. He's making the same point as before. He's saying that Jesus stands in solidarity with the human race. He comes from this family tree that stretches all the way back to Adam, the very first man. He comes from that line. He's on our team. But as you look at the roster of this team, you realize that everyone on this team has fumbled the ball at some point, at some point in time. Everybody on the roster is a failure. Nobody on this team has succeeded in loving God with all their mind, heart, soul, and strength. Nobody on this team has loved their neighbor as themselves. See, Jesus has been drafted to this team that is 5 and 11 at best. In reality, our record is far worse, right? But that is the point of the genealogy. Jesus is on our team, team human. He's wearing our jersey. But by connecting Jesus to Adam, Luke is doing something else as well. He's also taking us back in time, back to the garden. It was there in the garden that everything went wrong. There in the garden that a snake, the devil in disguise, tempted Adam and Eve to reject God, to turn their backs on him, to take their life into their own hands. Adam loses big time, and everyone else has too. But this is where Jesus comes into play. As soon as Jesus is baptized, he's led into the wilderness. And sure enough, who meets him there? It's the snake. It's the devil. And what does the devil do as soon as Jesus is baptized? He does what he's always done. He tempts Jesus to take his life into his own hands. He tempts Jesus to forsake God and others. He tempts Jesus to live for number one. But Jesus won't do that. And we've all done that, but Jesus won't. We fumble the ball. We all lose. We all forfeit the game. But Jesus doesn't. He wins. And most significantly, most importantly, he wins with our jersey on his back. He wins one for the team. And here's how the story goes. 
Picking up right where we left off. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he, the devil, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hand they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is how our story ends tonight. The devil tempting Jesus three times and Jesus passing the test every single time. In 2018, UVA's men's basketball team suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of UMBC. UMBC put the hurt on us in that stadium right over there before they went into the tournament and did the same to UVA. But for the first time in NCAA history, a number one seed team lost to a 16 seed team in the opening rounds of the tournament. That never happened before. UVA became a laughingstock and their jersey a joke. One year later, 2019, it seems like history is going to repeat itself all over again. UVA enters into the tournament a number one seed again. They almost lose. They scrape by the opening rounds of the tournament. They make it to the final four. It's a tough game. UVA is pitted against Auburn, the Auburn Tigers. An unanswered 12-point run gives Auburn the lead 62-60 to with only seconds left in the game. There's two seconds left on the clock. The Cavaliers are desperate. They give the ball to their best player, a guy named Kyle Guy, who shoots a three-pointer, just kind of chucks it at the rim, hoping, right, that they might get a, uh, I don't know, that they might stave off elimination. Now, as the ball is leaving his hand, somebody bumps into him. He's fouled. And what this means, to the shock of everyone there and everyone watching, is that Kyle Guy is now going to go to the free-throw line and he's going to shoot three three throws. Of course, the Auburn fans are furious. This is it. There's 0.6 seconds left in the game. If Guy misses, the team goes home again a bunch of losers. If he makes the shots, they return a bunch of heroes. Right? The fate of the game and the fate of his team rests on his shoulders and is in the palm of his hands. As he steps up to the line, the Auburn fans are going crazy. 
They're screaming. They're jumping up and down. They're, you know, bumping their thunder sticks. They're doing everything they can to distract Guy from making these shots. Doing everything they can to make him look the other way, to miss. Guy steps up to the line. He takes the ball in his hands. He takes a deep breath. And then he goes, swish, swish, swish. He doesn't miss. Guy is victorious. And because Guy is victorious, UVA is too. That right there, that is the point of this story. That's the point of Luke's story. Jesus puts on our jersey. He goes to the line with us and for us. And the guy doesn't miss. See, Jesus taking on flesh, Jesus wearing our jersey and not missing a shot gets to the core of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Our sins have made a separation between us and God. We can't be near him because of them. But God has come to bridge that gap, to make us clean and whole again, to give us access to him once once again. He comes as a human being. He lives the life that we should have lived, and he dies the death that we deserve to die. God becomes a man, and he lives a perfect life. He doesn't miss a shot so that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him can share in his victory. But he also dies the death that we deserve to die. So on the cross, he pays the penalty for all of our fumbling and failings and forfeits and losses. And it's because of both of these, his substitutionary death and his perfect record, that if you are in Christ, if you are on Jesus's team, you are a winner. Even though you might feel like a loser, even though your record is losing, if you're on his team, you're winning. You're okay. It's not about what you have done. It's about what he has done. And what he has done is not miss a shot. He's victorious. His victory is yours. He's your MVP. See, when Guy made three shots to win the game that night, the team did not go to the line and start practicing free throws. That was not the takeaway. When Guy won the game... His team ran to him, and they embraced him, and they lifted him high, and they rejoiced. And that is our takeaway, too. Look at Jesus. He's on the line with us and for us. He's got our jersey on. He doesn't miss. Jesus succeeds where you and I fail, and that is the point of the story. That is our takeaway. You have it in Jesus, a hero who is going to win the game for you. So rush the courts, embrace him, lift him high, because he is the greatest of all time. Let's pray.